if we're ever to get away from a system where we don't have sweatshops, and let's be frank, the vast majority of clothing today is produced in conditions that are very close to slave labor, we have to, as a society, change our expectations about how disposable fabric is and think about ways of transforming existing garments into something that might fit the fashion better now. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, Good Dirt listeners. Welcome to the Good Dirt. It's Friday. If you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, it is the day of our slow living retreat, our virtual slow living retreat. We're so excited. And for all who are coming, we can't wait to see you tonight at the welcome gathering. We have some fun things in store. And then, of course, tomorrow at all of our workshops and our coffee chat. And I'm so looking forward to our happy hour gathering after all of our workshops. And we'll hear from Miss Eliza Blue, who's also been on the podcast. She's going to do some music and storytelling for us. So we are just so excited to see you guys. And for anyone listening who'd like to hop in, you know what? It's actually not too late to join. And if you aren't able to join us live, though, we would love to see you live the ticket includes access to the recordings, so you can catch up on it on your own time. But we've spent so much time and love and thought in putting this weekend together, and we're just really excited for it. It's kind of why we do what we do, together with everyone. Yeah, I am really looking forward to it. I really think, I know it sounds like it would be easy for me to say this, but I really think this might be the best one yet. Oh my gosh, that's exciting because they've been pretty good. (laughs) No, and if I do say so myself, I think they just get better and better. And I think that's the case with this one. I'm I'm just so excited. I'm so excited about the content and the subject matter and the things that we'll be discussing and learning. It's just, oh my gosh, it's inspiring to me. And I certainly hope and think it'll be very inspiring to those that are participating. So yeah, the slow living retreat has always been for me at least personally, a reminder of, you know, my mom and I are the driving force behind it and we put all of the kind of pieces together, but it reminds me about how Lady Farmer and what we're doing is so much bigger than us. It's not just about, you know, you and I just putting on a show. It's like, it becomes so much bigger and it's a, a time to invite in the community and realize like what we're doing this all for so yeah I just feel like once we you know open up the space to do stuff like this it just invites so many other things in ideas and people and connections and discoveries and so it's just like creating a space for really magic and discovery and the beauty of community it's really exciting 
Well, I'm going to go ahead and ask you about <laughs> a little sneak peek into what we are yeah. talking about tonight. Some of you guys may have seen on our Instagram this past week we shared about Kailiach. Yeah, the Kailiach. So <laughs> tell us about the Kailiach. Um, she is the winter goddess. Is that who she well, is? Well, you can frame her that way. She's actually, she comes from very, very ancient folklore. Nobody really knows the very source of these images and these ideas, but the Kailiach has come to us through Gaelic and later on Irish and Scottish folklore. And other places as well, but she emerges as the winter hag or the winter goddess, if you will. She actually personifies the energy of winter, the images of winter. And if you think about ancient people, they were living immersed in nature, dependent on nature, not separated from it as we are in our post-industrial civilization. They looked out upon it and tried to glean understanding for things they were experiencing. So you can imagine how, you know, it was cold and it was dark and they looked around them and what did they see? They saw bare trees. They saw tangled vines. They saw exposed earth. They experienced these images and this energy of an old woman, not only with some fear, because there's certainly a lot to be feared in the winter, a lot of threats, but also with great reverence because she was regarded as holding the wisdom of the life beneath the soil that's waiting to reemerge in the spring. And, you know, we've talked about Bridget on here before. She's often seen as the counterpart of Bridget, who is a harbinger of spring. So in many of the legends and stories, the Kailach comes out at Sawain, mm-hmm. and she lives until February 2nd when she goes and drinks from a well and she transforms into the youthful Bridget, the symbol of spring. So it occurs to me how if the Kailach appears at Sawain as the winter hag, then we certainly can see where our idea of the Halloween witch came from. I know, and I also think it's so interesting how the old hag, the old woman, there's it's twofold. It's so there's wisdom and there's like I'm thinking of the you know the grandmother Willow and Pocahontas. Yes. Like the revered motherly wise figure, but also we have this dichotomy of the it's scary, an old woman which scary. Yes. Maybe it's the amount of power that's scary or the amount of wisdom that's or it's just it's crazy how those two things exist side by side. Absolutely. She holds a huge amount of power because she controls the life underground. She's the holder of that life force. She presides over it. So yes, there's a great deal of fear, intimidation, reverence, respect, all those things. And those do relate to how we might approach the wisdom of an elder. Yeah. And certainly that image from the the movie Pocahontas Mm -hmm. is a vestige of this. Absolutely. I mean, what culture do we not have the image of an old, ragged, worn person also holding wisdom for the generations to come? I think it's probably pretty much a universal concept. Yes, completely. And that's so reflected in nature at winter. Old, ragged, worn. And so that's just a a little bit about what we're going to be talking about this weekend. and Yeah. 
integrating that into our experience of this season. Mm, I can't wait to get to know the Kaliach better. So that's what's coming up tonight. So what about today, Emma? What about today's episode? Oh, yes. So today's episode, we have Sarah Marie Massey. She's a lead interpreter at George Washington's Mount Vernon. She works with the Historic Trades Department, teaching and actually doing many of the skills and trades that were practiced around Washington's estate during his lifetime there. Sarah's been in the field of living history for 16 years, 14 of them at Mount Vernon, and she spends her days talking to visitors about Washington's sustainable, innovative farming practices and demonstrating various trades that enslaved people and indentured workers would have done on the estate. Her favorite demonstrations are cooking and textile work, like spinning, weaving, natural dyeing, and preparing wool, linen, and hemp fibers to be spun. And she has a PhD in cultural studies. I love this discussion. I thought it was super fascinating. I love history. I love pulling those things forward into how they've changed and how we approach things today. I really especially loved hearing about the textile production that took place right there at Mount Vernon and the importance of it in both the life of the estate and economics of it. And, you know, it was sort of a really kind of self-enclosed little economy there. Yeah. We originally found Sarah, we were so excited about the work that they're doing there with hemp and hemp textiles because there was so much being done here at Mount Vernon that we have to learn from, especially now that they're, you know, learning more and the more they work through his papers and you hear Sarah talking about a lot of that. So I think you and I are super excited about what we can be learning from the past here. Yeah. And it's just so crazy. We have no idea, you know, besides looking at the documents and the relics that we have left over, it's just so interesting to imagine what it would have been like different world. And Sarah is a wealth of knowledge about this part of our history. And she's so insightful when it comes to helping us reflect back on how these things from our past can give us a more informed perspective on how we're living today. So we hope that you enjoyed this episode with Sarah Marie. And we will see those of you who are joining us tonight at the Slow Living Virtual Retreat. We're so excited. So, Sarah, we'll have you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background personally and how you got to what you're doing and what you're doing. So, my name is Sarah Marie Massey, and I'm a lead interpreter at George Washington's Mount Vernon, and specifically, I work with the Historic Trades Department. So, we work in costume, but not in character, and we talk about and actually do many of the skills and trades that were being practiced around Washington's estate, primarily by enslaved people, but also by hired white workers, whether they were indentured or whether they were just coming on as employees. And so everything from a blacksmith shop to a miniature farm, we do textile work, we do cooking demonstrations, uh, we just got a new clay oven. And so I do a mixture of the hands-on work as well as talking to the public. And I also do a lot of the behind the scenes work. I research and develop new programs and update the scholarship and information that we have so that our information is accurate. And I pull together all the equipment that's needed for each demonstration so that 
when people are out on site talking to the public, they're successful and it's easy for them to do what they need to do. And you have your doctorate, correct? I do. What is it? Cultural studies. Tell us a little bit about how you got here. Yeah, I'm happy to tell you about how I got here personally, but our field is very open, especially for people who just want to talk to the public. We have people from all walks of life and really all ages as well. But specifically, I am an academic who was waylaid by museum work. I started working in living history right after undergrad, and I took a year off. It ended up being two, but I worked at a very small living history museum in central Virginia called the Frontier Culture Museum. Oh, yes. Mm. And it was supposed to be just a fun way to kind of pass the time until I was ready to go back to school and Then when I went back to school, I decided it would be good to have a part-time job. So again, it was supposed to be just kind of something like a filler. Mm -hmm. And then along the way, I did a lot of academic teaching and I realized I actually preferred the museum setting. Well, you certainly get to wear cooler clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Cooler, perhaps not in a literal sense. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Well, linen is quite cool, but the number of layers can be intense in mid-August out in the humidity. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of linen, we'd love to hear about the specific textiles and textile production at Mount Vernon, both at the time of when it was when Washington lived there, and then also anything that's currently happening. (laughs) Absolutely. The primary textile industry at Mount Vernon started in the mid-1760s. Washington had an indentured servant, a man, a white man, who was trained as a weaver, and he proposed this idea to Washington that he should be producing textiles, and they started a program. And he basically did a cost-effectiveness study where he initially was hoping to sell cloth, you know, decorative bedspreads to some of the local planters in the region. But he determined fairly quickly that the money he was getting from them was not actually covering the cost that he was laying out to purchase the clothing for the enslaved community. Imagine that. (laughs) (laughs) And so he ended up switching goals. And for the majority of his lifetime, the textile industry focused on producing the clothing for the enslaved and specifically for the farmhands, because anybody who was working in the mansion house was on public display. And so he was importing much higher quality fabrics for them. But the field hands were using primarily rough linens and rough woolens that were produced here in-house. And they also produced some Lindsay Woolsey, which is a blended cloth. Usually the, the linen is the warp and the wool is the weft. And total, they were producing about 2,500 yards of cloth a year. A couple of things. Linen, just for anyone listening, that comes from the flax plant, correct? Yes. And they were growing, so they were growing the flax plant there at Mount Vernon? Yes. And it was typically grown in long, thin rows between the commercial fields. So it wasn't a regular part of Washington's crop rotation. He put it kind of in alternate places. Okay. And you also said warp and weft. And for anyone listening who might not know what that is, can you explain what that is? Absolutely. So the warp, when you're weaving... It's the vertical threads, the long ways threads that go across the loom. And the weft is the filler 
my colleague likes to say, you can remember the warp because it's warp speed ahead, right? So if you're thinking about say the Star Wars, you know, credits and and that vertical line, oh, that's, that's, so that's the work. Okay. And you can think of the weft because the weft goes right and left. Yes. Right. And weft. So the advantage of Lindsay Woolsey is that linen is stronger than wool and it's more breathable than wool, but wool is warmer. Mm-hmm. And so Lindsay Woolsey combines those properties and you use the linen for the warp because the warp is under a huge amount of physical tension. You're pulling it yeah, really tight it's, on the loom. Gravity, like when you're wearing it, it's the down. Well, but even when you're making it uh, yeah. on the loom itself, you have to stretch it very physically tight for the machine to work properly. Yeah. And so it's better to have your stronger thread be the warp. Okay. So they were growing the flax. They had sheep, obviously, for the wool. They were processing it all there on site and weaving it. And I would like to say the idea of Lindsay Woolsey as a textile was that it was very utilitarian, correct? It's more of a functional thing rather than a fashion. Correct. You can certainly make beautiful Lindsay Woolsey's, Mm -hmm. but the idea is that you're going to get the benefits of both linen and wool. And it it was typically used in spring and fall. Mm -hmm. Those transition times. Yeah, exactly. So now in modern times, we're just so separated from all of those things. And we as consumers are so separated from those different stages of production. So it's really amazing to imagine it all happening there. Yes. And it, they took it further. I mean, they took those bolts of cloth. Martha Washington would inspect them for flaws. And then she would use a combination of enslaved tailors and hired tailors to cut out the pattern pieces. And then there were seamstresses who would be stitching together all of the seams. Wow. So they were really going from field all the way into finished garment. And these finished garments that they were making specifically at Mount Vernon, were those for the people working there? Or, I mean, was this a market? It was for the people working there. It was for the slaves, the enslaved people. It is economic because... Fabric in the 18th century was one of the most expensive things you had to pay for. Mm -hmm. So today, you know, we typically spend most on our housing, right? If you look at a modern person's budget. Yeah. Typically in the 18th century, you would spend a comparable amount on cloth. That is so interesting. That's amazing. Yeah. And so producing as much fabric as they could in-house, even though it's not directly bringing profit to Mount Vernon, it is a huge contribution to the financial success of the estate as a whole, because it means that Washington is not having to buy that fabric. Yeah. yeah. So would that have been as much of an expense as the food? More. More. Yes. So there are some scholars who did a study of the first 20 years of Washington's life, and they didn't study all of his expenses. They only studied his purchases from England. And of course, he also made local purchases. But in that first 20 years of his life, 46% of the money that he spent in England was on cloth. And I think it was 36% of the line items were textiles. Wow. Over food, housing, transportation, all the furniture. Yeah, everything. This is horrible. But even like people, enslaved people, Yes. Gosh. <laughs> you know, that's kind of like 
we so cheapen God. cloth now. I mean, the average person throws away 82 pounds of textiles per person on average in the United States. And so that that's really very interesting. Yeah, I think it's really hard for contemporary people to get into that headspace and imagine yeah. how valuable fabric was because it is disposable to us now. Yeah. So, you know, that's Washington and they do that really up until the end of his life. Right. So when I was first hired at Mount Vernon in 2007, we did not do any kind of textile demonstrations at all, but I did have experience spinning. I had a small amount of experience weaving and there were several other people who were interested in bringing that part of Washington's legacy to life. And so within about, I would say three years, we started a very small textile program and it grew. So at this point, we grow flax, we grow hemp, we grow cotton, we raise hog island sheep, which are a rare heritage breed. They were dropped on an island off the coast of Virginia in the 1600s and left there pretty much unchanged. And they're very similar to the sheep that Washington had. He didn't have a nameable breed for the most part. So they're as close as we can get to what he had. And we do process that wool. We shear it every year and our department gets a certain number of fleeces and we're washing it, we're carding it, we're spinning, weaving. In certain cases, we're dyeing it different colors using plant and animal dyes that were available in the 18th century. And at the moment, our weaving program is primarily focused on uh, producing items for display and producing items for auctions or donor gifts or, you know, ways of contributing to Mount Vernon. But we have produced some items that are used in exhibitions, you know, that are displayed as part of the museum itself. And we are hoping at some point to develop a commercial endeavor as well. We were still trying to figure out exactly how that would look and what types of products we would offer, but that is something that we would like to do. That's incredible. Tell us a little bit about how many people are involved in this, how much time it takes, what is that like, and is it similar to what it would have been in Washington's day? So today, I think there are probably eight or nine people who are part of our textile team, and that grows and shrinks depending on our staffing because you have to really have a love for textiles to do it. You know, if you're not interested, we're certainly not going to force anybody. (laughs) (laughs) In Washington's time, it was a much larger crew. So the records from the spinning house show that depending on the year and, you know, even depending on the week, there were typically between five and nine enslaved women who were spinning full-time and There were also seamstresses. Very few of the seamstresses here at Mount Vernon were full-time. They worked as chambermaids. They worked as dairymaids. They did jobs like that. And so they were sewing either on off days or, you know, in moments when they weren't needed to haul water or serve the table or, you know, those kinds of things. It was more like in the list of things to be done and less of I'm a seamstress. Okay. Or, you know, I'm working as a seamstress this week, but we have five guests that just arrived. So the next week I'm going to be working in the house. Okay. Both of those situations happened. So would all of the enslaved women be trained in all those skills, the spinning and the sewing? No, 
it, that is definitely not something I'm sure everybody knew how to sew to a certain extent because, uh-huh. you know, the enslaved people, they, they had to mend their own clothing. You have to sew on buttons, you know, just day to day life would require that that everybody pretty much could sew everybody below a certain class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the spinning in particular was a designated skill. And during the Revolutionary War, there are several kind of funny notes that Washington leaves in his letters with overseers about how there are these young enslaved women who are learning how to spin and it's going kind of slowly because they don't really know what they're doing. So in terms of speed, Washington expected his spinners to spin a pound of wool a day or three quarters of a pound of flax. And getting a sense of how much that turned into can be a little difficult because the technology that you're using for spinning significantly changes how quickly you're working. But most likely that pound of wool became two and a half to three miles of thread. Gosh. Whoa. And unfortunately, that's only enough thread to make about one yard of finished fabric. So this is why cloth was so, so expensive at that time, because the labor involved was just astronomical. And before the spinners could work, somebody had to card the wool. It typically took three carders, three to five, to keep up with a spinner. And then before somebody was carding, they had to wash the wool. They had to shear the sheep. So you can see how the number of hours builds upon itself. Yeah. The weaving here at Mount Vernon was not done always by enslaved workers. The different things happened over the years, but primarily it was hired white workers doing that job. And weaving at a professional level in the 18th century was mostly done by men, which is kind of counterintuitive today. We think of weaving as domestic work. Of course, that's something women did, but that was not the case either in Europe or here, but especially in the colonies, because the colonies, there were very few urban centers. And so weavers and other craftsmen, in order to get enough work to fill the entire year, they had to travel. And so they were itinerant workers and they would go from plantation to plantation and they'd set up and they'd stay a month or two and then they'd move on to the next place. And it wasn't really safe for women to travel at that time by themselves because taverns if you could even find one, you did not get a room of your own. You typically did not even get a bed of your own. You would often be sharing a bed with multiple strangers. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) I've heard that. (laughs) So yeah, that wasn't proper for a woman to be traveling all over and going to taverns. And yeah, I can see how that wouldn't work. (laughs) So you do find women both in America and in Europe in the 18th century, weaving typically because their family members weave. So if your father is a weaver, if your husband is a weaver, you probably help with that work. And you you might be able to take over if your husband dies and continue the trade on your own. But that's not the norm. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the time and labor it takes to do what was being done at Mount Vernon in Washington's time versus now. And now it's much more, it sounds like there's a lot fewer people working on it, but it's also much smaller scale of production. So I guess my next question I'm interested in, what are some of the major learnings and obstacles I'm interested in? Is there anything that's like, well, we 
really can't replicate this from that time, or maybe you can, or... I think, in other words, what are the applications to the present day situation that we're getting at from what's happening at Mount Vernon? Yeah, and what are some of the obstacles as well? Yeah. (laughs) Well, one of the main obstacles is the fact that our primary function is to be a museum, and we're there for the public, not to train people to do textile work. So that impacts things in a number of ways. You know, there are programs that we give that take staff away Mm -hmm. from textiles. It impacts training because it's very hard to learn in front of the public. Mm -hmm. And weaving, but more so spinning, it can be very difficult to pick up the physical skill. And it's not intuitive. And trying to do that while you're talking to the public is difficult. And trying to train someone when you're trying to talk so that they can focus on learning is difficult as well. Yeah. So that's one obstacle. You know, we teach and demonstrate these things that happened at Mount Vernon and in the 18th century America. And what can we take from that today? And, you know, what does that mean for us to understand these things today? And how can it help us just kind of behave better when it comes to our own consumption? I think one lesson that we can learn from the past is that textile crops tend to be hard on the soil. Ah. Okay. Cotton in particular, it has a bad reputation, but even hemp and flax need good nutrients. And if you grow them multiple times in the same field without fertilizing or without rotating your crops, it is problematic and you can actually destroy your soil that way. Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, the labor involved, if we're ever to get away from a system where we don't have sweatshops producing clothing, and let's be frank, the vast majority of clothing today is produced in conditions that are very close to slave labor. Yes. Mm-hmm we have to, as a society, change our expectations about how disposable fabric is, which doesn't necessarily mean that we need to completely give up freedom of expression and the, the ability to change styles. But it does mean that we as a society may need to each become more knowledgeable about how to adjust our clothes ourselves and think about ways of transforming existing garments into something that might fit the fashion better now. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are the main things. Yeah. No, that's really good. Just looking to the past, just give us a better view of what's going on now. So valuable. Can you talk about hemp a little more? Yes, absolutely. So like I said, the hemp story is a little bit different than textiles in general. Washington actually investigates hemp a lot earlier than textile production as a whole. It has a very long history in Virginia. So I think the early 1630s, I think, or 1600s, I think the 1630s, but I could be wrong about that, is when it first started to be grown here in Virginia. Was it introduced by, like, was it? Yes, it's a European. Okay. So someone brought it over and said, we should plant this here. Yes. Okay. But for really up until Washington's lifetime, the production was kept local you know, the cloth that they made from hemp would have been for local consumption, primarily because of laws that Britain put in place. 
they did not want competition from the colonists. They did not want us selling goods to them. They wanted us buying goods from them. And so it was extremely expensive. There were all of these taxes and other charges put on exporting hemp fabric from the colonies. That changed in the 1740s. England had been involved in the French and Indian War. And there's kind of this hemp boom because suddenly they need hemp to produce rope and sailcloth to fuel their Navy and their shipping industry. And so not only do they make it legal to export hemp from the colonies, several states and localities started paying bounties to any planter who was growing hemp. And so Washington kind of jumps on that bandwagon. And this is also at a time when tobacco, which had been the primary cash crop of Virginia, was becoming less and less economically viable because so many other colonies had started growing it that there was a glut on the market and prices were going down. And tobacco is even worse for the soil than cotton or, or other you know, fiber crops. Mm-hmm. And so you know, the longer you grow it, the worse your return, you know, the worse your crops are and, and the, the less you can produce. And British regulation, tobacco was considered to be a luxury good. And so it was handled differently than other types of commodities that you could grow and sell. Mm-hmm. And basically colonists were only allowed to sell tobacco to British merchants, which meant that the merchants were able to control the price, and they set it below market value, which was already dropping. Oftentimes, planters were selling directly to England, or in England, I should say. And when they did that, they did not get cash for their crop. They got credit in British stores. And the price of the goods were set really high, and the price of the tobacco was set really low. And so for Washington, his his goods were returning to Mount Vernon with a bill attached. And This happens year after year, and suddenly it's like having a credit card that you can never pay off. It's compounding debt. So, like I said, tobacco was looking less favorable. Right. And hemp was becoming more viable. And so Washington investigates it as a potential alternative to tobacco as a cash crop. He experiments with it for a number of years, and eventually what he decides is that the soil at Mount Vernon will grow hemp, but it's not going to be the highest quality, and he really can't produce it on an industrial scale. And so Washington's very practical about this. He does this with a number of industries. He says, all right, I'm not going to make money with this, but I can save money with this. And so he reduces the amount of hemp that they're growing, but continues to grow it throughout his life as a way of meeting internal needs. So again, with the linen, he adds it to the rotation of things that he's producing for himself. Yes. Self-reliant. Okay. Hemp can be used to make linen fabric, Uh just like flax. And you can really only tell the difference often if you look with a microscope. But the longer fibers of hemp can be stronger. And so they were typically prized for rope, twine. Washington had a huge fishing industry. So fishnet and fishnet repair Mm -hmm. is something that he would have needed hemp for. Is that right? I've heard that too. They made sales. Uh, Well, he wouldn't have been making sales, but yes, sailcloth is definitely something that hemp was used to create in England. And then shoelace twine, 
We have specific records at the spinning house of them spinning shoe twine from hemp. So it's always been my understanding that hemp roots go down very deep so that it was and is a way to regenerate the soil between crop. Is that something they didn't employ back then or what's your understanding of that? That is not my experience. Okay. Because with most fiber crops, hemp and flax both, Mm -hmm. the fiber extends into the root. And so you, when you harvest, you do actually pull it up by the root and the, the root is not very long. It's probably three inches, maybe four, sometimes shorter, but hemp does require very well tilled soil. And so oftentimes you would be plowing multiple times prior to planting, which does bring up additional nutrients Mm -hmm. and plowing like that, doing extensive plowing was one of the ideas that Washington latched onto from this movement called new husbandry that he subscribed to. And it's basically the first time that scientific practice is applied to farming. Oh, so did that suggest more tilling? Yes. Oh. However, we do know today that the gains in nutrients that you get from extensive plowing are short-term. And actually long-term, that destroys the beneficial microbiome within the soil, and it will eventually disrupt your ability to produce good crops. And it also destroys native root systems, Right. which again, short-term, that will mean that you have less native grass popping up in your fields of crops, which is, seems good, but those root systems end up being really important for preventing erosion. Mm -hmm. So for example, the dust bowl was partially caused by overplowing and destroying these root systems that were crucial for maintaining fertile soil. But in Washington's day, the experimenting didn't go quite long enough for them to figure that out. They were in this New husbandry. That's so interesting. I had not heard that. Yeah. It was a whole movement that started in England and Washington was reading everything he could get a hold of from those scientists and corresponding with them. Mm -hmm. And they would send him ideas and he would try them out and then send back a letter that said, this is what worked and this is what didn't. And Wow. Do you think that held on until the no-till advice of the most recent decades? Yes. Wow. But some of the ideas that new husbandry brought forward were beneficial and continued to be beneficial. Yeah. They were huge proponents of bringing crop rotation back into use, which had kind oh, of fallen out of favor. I was going to ask about crop rotation. Yeah. Had that been something that just had gone by the wayside? Yes. And particularly in the new world, because the idea was, you know, this is before the Lewis and Clark expedition. We didn't even know how far America went. Yeah. Nobody had ever gotten, no white people had ever gotten out to the West Coast. And so the philosophy was, we're never going to run out of land. We don't have to do anything to maintain our soil or or be sustainable. We can always move West. It was disposable. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) exactly. And of course, that wasn't the case over in England. As an island nation, they had a limited amount of land. Mm -hmm. They could not expand. And so they were at a point where they needed to bring nutrients back. And so that's why this movement started bringing crop rotation back. And early crop rotations, they were typically either a three-year rotation or a four-year rotation. And the resting fields would sit fallow, which basically means that you wouldn't do anything. You wouldn't plant, you wouldn't 
plow, you wouldn't harvest, you just let the things grow that grew. So that does help. But this new husbandry movement supported the idea of taking those resting fields and finding some use that will actively put nutrients in. So for example, in the crop rotation that Washington develops, he dedicates two fields at each farm to pasture grass for sheep. And those are resting fields. But the idea is that the sheep will graze, they'll leave manure, and that will fertilize. He used other livestock as well, but he preferred sheep because in 1760, he did this experiment. This is one of my favorite experiments that he ever did. He built 10 boxes. He took soil from a part of his estate and filled half of each box with that soil. And then he put a different fertilizer in each box. Oh, wow. So horse manure, cow manure, sheep manure, sand from the bottom of the Potomac, mud from one of the local streams, lime. He tried a number of different things. And then he planted three rows of crops in each box. I think rye, oats, and barley. And he waited to see which one did the best. Now, he never recorded the results of that experiment, but shortly thereafter, that's when he starts focusing on grazing sheep. Mm, So we think that's the one that won. Yes. So I have one question. You were talking about bringing crop rotation back. So -hmm. it went away for a while in the colonies because there was this sense of infinite land. Land was a not a limited resource. Where was it before it went away? Where did the whole crop rotation thing, like, where did it come from? So crop rotation was developed in the early Middle Ages in Europe. Okay. That three-year rotation developed in medieval Europe. And it's not that nobody in the colonies rotated their crops. Mm -hmm. A few people did, but it wasn't standard practice. Mm -hmm. And the rotations that they did did not include fertilizers. Mm. So in addition to using animal manures, another thing that this new husbandry movement discovered was the use of nitrogen-fixing crops. Yeah. And nitrogen is a chemical that most plants need to grow. And so they deplete it from the soil as they grow. But there are certain types of plants that will put it back in. And it has to do with the way that their root systems are built. So Washington and his contemporaries did not know that nitrogen is what those plants were providing, but they knew that they worked to put nutrients in. And so they called these plants green manure crops because they're acting like manure. Yeah. And that would be the peas and the beans and things, right? Yes. Anything in the legume family works as a nitrogen fixer. Washington also used turnips, buckwheat, clover, and he did not use peanuts, but they're another sort of famous nitrogen fixer. Wow. You are an agricultural historian. Yeah. As well as a textile historian. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we do run a farm. We have to be. (laughs) Yeah. So speak to that quickly. So we talked a little bit about what's going on today with kind of reviving that textile production. Is it similar Mm -hmm. over on the farm end? You have a farmer and keep things going? Yes. So actually the farm came first. In the 1990s, Mount Vernon decided to build an exhibit that talked a little bit about that aspect of Washington's life because he was innovative as a farmer and he had this incredible legacy bringing all these new ideas to the new world. Mm -hmm. And he had 
a very civic mindset when it came to these innovations. He was not just doing it for himself. He really felt that land was one of our biggest assets in the new world. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't have infrastructure like Europe did. We didn't have skilled labor like they did, but we had land. And he wanted to develop what he described as a well-worn path for other farmers to follow because Mm -hmm the average farmer could not afford to do the kinds of experiments that he was doing. Right. You know, if they tried an experiment and it failed, they might not be able to feed their families. Mm -hmm. And so he's trying to kind of take the the burden of that risk on himself so that he can figure out a system that other people can follow. Yeah. So was there any interest in observing or learning from Native Americans and what they were doing here, were they even doing like practicing agriculture as we think of it, you know, today? Like, I obviously they had lived here for centuries and subsisted, but what was that like? Was there any conversation there? Was Washington interested in that? And was there much interaction with the natives at all? Yeah. <laughs> Washington did have a fair amount of interaction with indigenous people, but not really at Mount Vernon, because by the time that he inherited Mount Vernon, you know, it had been settled for three generations. Okay. So the indigenous people had already moved west, but he did encounter them as a young man when mm-hmm. he took on work as a surveyor and mm-hmm. he encountered them during the French and Indian War you know, so as a soldier. And then of course, during the revolutionary war, he was negotiating with them to fight, you know, try to fight. Yes. On his side. And, and of course, as president, he also negotiated some of the earliest treaties with Mm -hmm. indigenous tribes in terms of agricultural knowledge. This is true both for Washington and I think more generally as well. Europeans had very little interest in harvesting or, you know, using native knowledge, right? taking advantage of native knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. However, there was a fair amount of exchange of that knowledge in the early years of colonization, often by necessity. Yeah. You know, for example, corn did not grow in Europe. And so, you know, Europeans had to learn how to grow it. It was one of the primary staples of pretty much every colony at the time. Wow. And so there's this unacknowledged knowledge that they sure. yeah. had from, from Native peoples. And specifically here at Mount Vernon, how that plays out, you know, for example, using dead fish, they are an incredibly good fertilizer. And actually, if you go to a garden store today, you can buy fish meal. Yeah. And that is a practice that Native people used. They would bury a dead fish at the foot of an ear of corn. And Washington isn't necessarily doing that, but what he is doing is he had a fishing industry that was typically in April and May, and all of the inedible parts, the heads, the tails, and the insides of the fish would be plowed into the fields as fertilizer. So did he think of this as as indigenous knowledge? No, but it was, and he was using it. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Like, what would that have been like if the Europeans rolled up and were like, teach us your ways? You know, wouldn't we just be like, well, be amazing. (laughs) I grew up like it was almost proverbial or mythological idea that, you know, Squanto showed the pilgrims how to grow corn by using the fish. In fact, I can see in my mind the illustration in my little 
third grade history book of Squanto putting a dead fish in the corn thing. But to your point, if they did learn stuff, it was not a kind of scenario where they would be giving them a lot of credit for it. (laughs) Exactly. There was also cultural exchange, a significant amount of cultural exchange between enslaved people and Mm -hmm. indigenous people, because in the early years, many indigenous people were enslaved as well. But even if they weren't, they were both oppressed communities Mm -hmm. and they had similar ways of thinking about and approaching food production. Mm -hmm. And so early on, you know, again, I'm talking the 1600s, there was a lot of sharing of knowledge about how to trap certain types of game, how to find edible wild plants, what kinds of medicinal plants are available. So that kind of knowledge did pass to enslaved people. Interesting. Well, I think it's something that's becoming apparent now is that the indigenous populations did have a sense of sustainability because they were here for thousands and thousands of years and things did not degrade to the extent that we have seen in the last 200 years. So yeah, there's something about that, that the Europeans didn't quite get. Yeah. But we'll see how that plays out, but every tribe is different. So it's, I hesitate to Make generalizations. Yeah, Yeah. but probably in a broad sense, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what stories can you share with us about Mount Vernon or something that's come across to you in your work? I do have some fun stories or interesting stories, I should say. They're not always fun. Okay, so one of my favorite, well, again, most of the people doing textile work at Mount Vernon were enslaved, not all of them, but many of them. And one of my favorite stories of passive resistance and passive resistance is where you're not necessarily revolting against your enslaver, but you're finding little ways of making life more livable. Mm. Okay. So one of my favorite stories of passive resistance is this enslaved man named Peter. And he had some kind of infirmity, Washington Well, this was common for slave owners to have kind of derogatory nicknames. So in the records here at Mount Vernon, he's listed as lame Peter. And oftentimes what Washington had those kinds of people do, if you couldn't work full time in the fields, he would have them do textile work. And and Peter was actually the fastest knitter here at Mount Vernon. So he was making stockings for the enslaved people that would have been distributed as part of their clothing rations. And he could knit two and a half pair of stockings a week, which is like a lot. Wow. Because <laughs> <laughs> the stockings are long. They went above the knee. But there's this one time when he was told that the amount he was making was not enough and they upped his quota. And so in resistance, he made the stockings the number they wanted. He just made them itty bitty, oh. too small to fit anybody. <sighs> Oh, how funny. Which I just think has, so shows so much character. And yes, you know, they didn't tell him what size to make. They just told him how many. That's great. So is this recorded somewhere like, and then Lane Peter made and they didn't fit anyone or? Yes. Yeah. That's how we get all of these stories. And sadly, you know, we have very few stories that were written. Well, none of them were written by the enslaved people here at Mount Vernon. Right. We do have a few interviews in white newspapers that were 
interviews with former Mount Vernon slaves. But most of these stories were getting from visitors to Mount Vernon when they write letters about their experience or diaries, or we're getting information from farm reports, Mm -hmm. or we're getting information in letters between Washington and his overseers. Would he have been punished for that? Do you know what happened? Most likely, yes. And I do not remember what happened. I need to go back to the primary source and look that up. Oh my gosh. So do you have another story? Yeah, that was fun. (laughs) We like the story. (laughs) I do. This one is not quite as happy, but this is a story that I often tell when people ask me, you know, what kind of slave owner Washington was. And so this is an incident that happened in the 1790s and Washington was actually serving as president at the time. So he was not living here at Mount Vernon. And there was an enslaved woman named Charlotte. And you know how I mentioned earlier, so she was a seamstress. Uh, but she also worked as a chambermaid. And so she's one of those people who did both jobs. And Charlotte had quite the personality. But in this particular instance, um, she got into a disagreement with her overseer, Andrew Whiting. And at the end of the argument, he beat her with a riding crop. Now, the next day was her day off. The day after that, he sent her sewing to do. And she sent the materials back with the work undone. And so when he went to investigate, she gave him an earful. She told him, you beat my finger and it's swollen and I can't work. And I have worked 14 years here at Mount Vernon as a slave and I have never been beaten. And she told him that she planned to tattletale to the Washingtons when they returned to Mount Vernon. Mm. Wow. Which is really interesting because that suggests to me that she thought they would take her side. Yeah, Yeah. she knew that that would be disagreeable to Washington. However, like I said, you know, we get this story in letters between Washington and, and his overseer, Andrew Whiting. And after describing this incident, Whiting tells Washington that if Charlotte continues to refuse to work, he plans to break her spirit or skin her back. Oh, that is a direct quote. Oh, dear. Right. And Washington's response is your treatment of Charlotte is very proper. Oh, Oh. that's so sad. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, moving along here, what does the good dirt mean to you? Literally or metaphorically, you can answer any way you like. Sure. Well, literally, I see it as well-tended in terms of maintaining the nutrients and the microbiome. You know, good dirt is good for growing crops. Mm -hmm. Metaphorically, I'm going to put a kind of a historical spin on this because I am a historian. So, you know, if you think about the dirt, that's the gossip. Give me the dirt, right? Mm -hmm. And that's really what makes me passionate about history is the dirt. You know, history at its best is good stories. It's being able to make connections and see the people in the past as real people who are not so different from us and who made interesting decisions, not always good, but interesting decisions given their circumstances, who came up with good solutions to the problems that they faced. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I think to your point, I love this analogy. The dirt is what brings history to life for us. Exactly. The details. Mm -hmm. Exactly. The dates and, you know, the wars and the elections and stuff, that's just such a a small part of it. It's the dirt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. The stories of the yeah. humans and the people. It's what goes on in these letters and things yes. that we're talking about oh, that so you have, yep. that so you get great. to access. Which are often messy. Yeah. Yes. You know, the details, the deeper you dig in, the messier history becomes. 
Yes. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like, I guess because of the way that we learn history usually is growing up, you know, like in grade school with the cute drawing of Squanto, you know. Yeah. Well, Sarah, is there anything else that you want the, our listening audience to understand about the work that you do here at Mount Vernon or that you do with textiles and history and any last words of wisdom or anything? I, my point about, you know, people, that's, that's really the main thing I want people to take away, yeah. you know, the history being about people. Yeah. yeah. I'm interested in what excites you most about working at Mount Vernon. <laughs> so I love working at a place where new scholarship and discoveries are always on the horizon and we really do our best to incorporate them. Mm-hmm. So the story that we're telling changes over time. It doesn't have to be static and it's really exciting to work at a place where new information is being put into practice. Yeah. I also in the years that I've worked here in particular, Mount Vernon's interpretation of racial justice and and slavery as a whole has changed significantly. And that's been really exciting and it's moved in much more positive directions. And then, you know, on a day-to-day level, every person in my field lives for the visible impact that we have on visitors, on patrons. Mm -hmm. And we do. I mean, there, sometimes you see it there's like that light bulb moment. You see the aha mm-hmm. going off in people's mind. Sometimes it you don't know that you've made that kind of impact until the person walks away and you hear them talking to somebody else in their right. group. And you realize that they're thinking about what you said or what you said is making them rethink something that they thought before. But that's what I live for. Oh, I'm glad because I've had like 45 of those moments in this class. <laughs> I've been like, whoa. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I love that so much. And I feel that every time I visit a place yeah. like Mount Vernon or, you know, some sort of place where history is kind of recreated before your eyes and you learn all this good dirt and you get below the surface and it's just really rich and wonderful. Yeah. And thanks to people like you, they're going to bring it to life for us and give us some context and framing for the way we're living now and mm-hmm. ways in which we can, you know, rethink our behaviors and our consumption and the future of our lives and the planet. Yeah. It's all very rich. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. We really enjoyed our conversation today and I've learned so much and I can't wait to visit Mount Vernon again. (laughs) Yes. uh, Thank you. I'm yeah. I'm like Emma. Let's go. Yeah. (laughs) Are you all fully open? We are. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks again. And pleasure. You might see us showing up there someday soon. (laughs) Sounds good. Love to have you. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. Bye-bye. Thank you, Sarah Marie, for talking with us today. And thanks to all of you for being here and listening and supporting us on The Good Dirt. We are so excited to see you guys at the Slow Living Retreat later. Again, if you would still like to join us, you can still get a ticket. You just go to our website, click on the events tab, and you'll see all of the information there. And as always, you can also join us in the Almanac. Actually, if you're an Almanac member, then you get a great discount on the retreat ticket. So that's a fun thing to do, too. (laughs) If you think you want to come, you could join the Almanac and then get a discount. But yes, we're so grateful for this community, and we... Just love coming here every Friday and presenting these amazing people. Thank you guys for digging the good dirt. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.